and welcome to the first podcast from the, the Traveller in the Evening Substack. Uh, I'm Andy Wilson, uh, main editor of the Traveller in the Evening, and I'm here today with uh, my friend Connor Kostick. Um, but perhaps we should say a little bit about ourselves, or perhaps not. I don't know, Connor, but you can choose to do so. Uh, but Connor's an old friend of mine. We, we've known each other for many years through uh, being jointly active in politics uh, and he's also a recent contributor to The Traveller in the Evening. Um, he's written an article on eco-socialism. Uh, but today he's here to ask me some questions about an article I really recently posted on Substack about um, titans and hyper-objects. I won't say any more than that, and uh, Connor can try and beat some answers out of me. Thanks, Andy. It's a pleasure to participate in this first podcast of, I hope, very many Um I'll say no more about myself than I, than I'm a writer and a historian, because I think the important issues that you've addressed in your feature on Titans are what people might want to hear this podcast for, and and what we should focus on. So you you begin your piece with uh, a reminder of just how dramatic are the flooding events and fires of recent times, and you wrote this before the horrific mass floods of Libya that killed at least 20,000 people. And you make a point about this, which I'm going to ask you about, but I make my own point, which was only last night I was launching a book um, written by Declan O'Rourke set in 1847. And in 1847, he explained the potato famine in Ireland actually wasn't so bad. The, the crop wasn't anywhere near as bad as it had been the previous two years. And so hope came back to the community. So he was trying to imagine what it was like to be alive in the middle of a catastrophe where hope has returned. And it, it's a very interesting book because the catastrophe unfolds slowly. So they're still arranging balls and horse races and daily affairs. And this really feels very modern. It's a historical book, but it feels like the times we're in. So we're impacted by this catastrophe, but we're, you know, not not immediately. And it takes a list like yours to remind us, yes, these things are unfolding. We, we might be sort of busy wondering about our weekly shopping bills and, you know, mundane daily affairs. Life goes on, but it goes on differently inside of a catastrophe. And this brings me to my question. So you make this list and then you make the observation that shock on this kind of scale can have two effects. It can be like the early 20th century, the shock of the new and modernism and revolution springing from this collapse and crisis of an old system impacting with a new. But you also say it can it can lead to people playing possum, to just curling up and putting their hands over their ears. Um, and which do you think is more prevalent as we impact with the current crisis? Yeah, one of the things that was very much on my mind is the fact that everybody who talks about the climate crisis talks about the fact that, you know, we need to stop shouting. We need to stop making people panic because they've all worked out that that's a bad thing to um, I'm not quite convinced about that. I'm a believer in the, you know, just look up. It's about time we really paid attention to these things. But the problem isn't so much about whether people choose to pay attention. The problem is what tools have they got to react? 
because if you feel that you can't react appropriately, then then you're you're likely to feel you know shock and awe. You're likely to feel impotent in the face of this catastrophe, and that's a perfectly reasonable thing to feel. I think what's disappointed some of the Greens and 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 also socialists and other people were staking this. What disappointed them is that the, the obvious facts, the blatant, clear facts about climate degradation haven't immediately galvanised people into revolutionary activity. You know, people haven't immediately drawn the conclusions. And my article, in some ways, is about that. What are their options? Because I feel that shock is a, is a kind of movable feast. What does it mean to be shocked into activity? There is the kind of blunt shock and awe of like when the Allies invaded Iraq, stupefying people. There's that kind of shock. I think perhaps the main thing to note here is that what is happening is that people are losing a, a world. By a world, I don't mean the physical infrastructure of things has all been destroyed. It patently hasn't yet. But the world that they occupy in their mind, the world that we share, the world that we share consists of the assumptions that we've made, the assumptions about that world. And, you know, I talk at some length about that in uh, in the article about why people feel that way. They, they haven't got any option, really, because what's happening is on a scale that is unprecedented. Not literally, because it's, you know, in history, there's, there's been great climate changes at different times, the ice ages. I was reading recently about the Little Ice Age, which spread over quite a few centuries, but peaked in the 17th century. And how that caused similar reactions to today. You know, people spoke about a universal. I mean, there was there was, there was the rise of all kinds of um, unorthodox religious movements, mystical movements, as well as revolutionary movements. You know, the English Civil War, the great shaking up of society, and that took place actually partly because of the climate changes taking taking place there, the mini ice age. The world became less predictable, whereas people previously had thought of the weather in terms of folk tales about, you know, how to, how to know what's going to happen next with the weather. The weather itself was changing because the climate was changing in this mini ice age. And that inspired, you know, the first scientific attempts to, to understand the climate. The Royal Society began with people like John Locke taking careful account of, uh, you know, changes in the weather, particularly in wind in their house and the Royal Society um, organised for many of its contributors to, to take systematic notes about wind strength and direction all around the country so that they could uh, scientifically understand what was going on. But the reason all that was inspired, like that, that kind of growth of um, critical science, but also the growth of millenarian religious movements, was because of the shock of the new, really, the shock of this ice age. So I think that's the sense in which you know people are both stupefied by what's happened, alarmed by it, shocked by it, but also feel rather impotent about what they can do about it. So you draw on Timothy Morton's concept of the climate crisis being a hyper-object. Would you say more about this? This is a, this is a key concept for your leading it towards the, the, the question of titans. So it would be really helpful if you if you explain what is a hyperobject. Yeah, so Timothy Morton here is coming out of a, a tradition of speculative realism and a number of thinkers. All I'm saying here is that I don't think the idea is original to him, but he's written extremely well about this idea of a hyperobject. And what people mean by that, what Morton means by it, is an object of such scale, and that scale can be 
you know, a physical scale of how physically large it is, but it can also be temporal, the period over which it takes place, something that happens over thousands of years, like the current crisis. That is happening on such a scale that the human mind is incapable of intuiting what's going on. You know, you can you can have an object in front of you. I've got an object in front of me. I've got my phone, my keyboard, uh, you know, a can of drink. These are all objects that are really easy to conceptualize, to have, have an intuitive relationship with. Um, something like climate crisis is a hyper object because it can't be intuitively understood in that way. And I, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that, that hopefully connects the idea with the idea of titans and so on, which is that climate change takes place in such a way that you know global warming takes the form as it has this year, of forest fires, uh, storms, floods, and so on. And yet, any, and yet it is true that none of those individual forest fires or floods or whatever are themselves global warming. And that's why for any one of these events, it's possible for climate deniers, you know, climate change deniers, to say that the scientists cannot prove that this fire was caused by global warming, which of course the scientists can't because that's not how science works. You know, science explains that global warming makes fires this much more likely, makes them more intense to this or that extent, and so on and so forth. That's all highly scientific. Um, but what science doesn't say is, oh yeah, global warming caused the storms in Greece last night, which I happen to know about because my brother's just landed there for his uh, a week's holiday in Greece and he's uh, trapped in the house because there's thunder and lightning and torrential downpours on a massive scale. But no one can prove that's caused by global warming. So global warming, therefore, is something that is utterly dominates our lives today, uh, yet is completely impalpable. At one level, it might as well be a ghost, you know, because you can't put your finger on it. You can't touch it. It dominates your life. You, you know, you're dominated by not just these news events, but by the amount of microplastics in your body, it's directly physically affecting you. And yet, it's also kind of vaporous and vague, but it's not immediately palpable. And the way that people like Morton express that is to say that you don't experience hyperobjects directly, they're at their presence is mediated by other objects. And I'll sort of leave it at that, except to add that there's nothing special about hyperobjects in, in the following sense that what makes an object a hyperobject is that it is a hyperobject in relation to another object. It's not a hyperobject in and of itself. So humans may well be hyperobjects compared to some other things. You know, it's a relationship between different objects. And it's also not the case that hyperobjects are completely new to humans. Capitalism is a hyperobject, okay? But the speed of the oncoming of global warming is such that this awareness of the nature of hyperobject is really being forced on us for the first time. It's been brought to our attention that there are these hyperobjects because of climate warming, but the hyperobjects themselves are not new. Just um, exploring this concept a bit more, I mean, it, when I read it, it did sound exciting. It did sound like a fresh way of conceptualizing what's happening. But I struggled a bit with the examples given because they sounded a lot like concepts, which which they're not. I mean, they're very definitely called objects by yourself and by Morton and perhaps the speculative realists who I haven't read. But they are objects and the that's the sort of power of the idea of them, that they 
it's like we're crashing into you know a, a slow motion crash with a hyper object is is a really evocative kind of notion but you know can you say a bit more about a hyper object then is you know when you say capitalism or global warming or the law of value is a, another example that's mentioned these to me are concepts rather than objects so if you could say a bit more about what makes them objects as well it mean they can be both but yeah could you could you say more about that yes the it is really interesting what you say they're kind of because one thing that people typically will say about these phenomena is that they are aggregations you know they are they are patterns within the data so the data is rain yeah and then um global warming is a tendency in the data it's not actually a thing yeah well that's not tenable in and of itself, just from a trivial point of view, because how could how could a concept cause there to be more rain? Okay, it's not the, it's not the concept causing it, it is actually global warming. So global warming is, is a thing, it's an object. Actually, it's really important to stress that it is an object. These things are objects, okay? But it is extremely difficult for our mind, as it has previously existed, to grasp them as objects, because human mind, notwithstanding, you know, the latest discoveries in quantum mechanics and things like that, which put things in a slightly different light. But the human mind is accustomed to thinking about the world as a series of objects over which the mind ranges, organising those things, planning them, manipulating them, and so on and so forth. And that is the fundamental relationship between the mind and objects. And therefore, once you become palpably aware of a hyper-object such as global warming, your first reaction is going to be to say it is in some sense not real. You know, exactly as you are. You know, you're hovering on the edge of seeing it as a real or as a statistical phenomenon because we are not used to seeing things that are not immediately palpable in and of themselves as things that we coexist with. And in a way, that's what my entire article is about, is that we're going to have to get used to the existence of things which both kind of, from the old point of view, both are and are not. They dominate our lives but you can't put your finger on them. Now you, you can, I suppose you could have the microplastics in your body somehow extracted, possibly only by being dead first through a chemical process, but in principle you could have them extracted. But you wouldn't have removed global warming from yourself. If nothing else, you've also fully irradiated, you know, ever since they let off the first atomic bomb. So all of these things affect you but don't affect you, and that is what makes them like ghosts, fairies, titans, weird things that we're used to conceiving of as being weird outside the scope of the normal, paranormal, if you like. And yet all of those all feelings we have about the weird and the paranormal are appropriate responses to hyper-objects. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, it is a world that's being destroyed at the moment. And in a sense, it has already been destroyed in principle. And that world that is being destroyed is the world in which objects are those kind of palpable, manipulable, calculable things in front of the human mind, which the human mind lords it over. And that's the world you and I were brought up in, as indeed was everybody else, going back centuries, if not millennia now, brought up in that, certainly the last few centuries, brought up in that mindset. That's the mindset that's going. That's the mindset that's been undermined by global warming is the idea that, you know, the weird doesn't exist, that an object must be immediately in front of you palpable or, you know, in principle could be palpable in that way, or it's not an object. But that's what we're learning is that that is not the case and that old world view is slowly unravelling. Good, that's very helpful. And 
it brings me to a, another question. So a hyperobject is is an object extended in, in temporality and spatiality to far beyond what we can normally encompass. And then you mentioned the word weird there. So we can look at some of their properties as objects. And one of the properties I noticed you quoting Morton about is that they can have, in quotes, different amortization rates. And he gives the example of the hyperobject that is um, radioactive waste and says, you know, strontium-90 has a half-life of 30 years. So one can try and imagine an object like that with a half-life of 30 years. But plutonium-239 has a half-life of 24,000 years. So internally, it's it's in motion. It's it's weird. It's not like a can of Coke or your keyboard. So what we're talking about here is the way that this general weirdness impacts our sense of time in particular. And it is a, an absolutely crucial distinction. The example that Morton gives, which you mentioned, is that of a radioactive half-lives. And the point is that those different half-lives imply very different things for our understanding of the world. Principally, he foregrounds the fact that if you are creating waste with a, with a half-life of 24,000 years, then in planning what to do with that waste, you are, in a sense, in some kind of negotiation with, presumably, your own descendants in, for example, 24,000 years' time. You have to think about them and take them into account when you're when you're planning to get rid of this waste. And that is an extremely strange phenomenon. It would be the first time for me to have to think on that sort of broader canvas in terms of time. So that changes our lives. To have to make plans factoring in people. Now, our descendants in 24,000 years' time, assuming we have them, we don't know anything about them. They may have completely different aims, needs, and objectives to ourselves. Nevertheless, we have to now factor them into the equation. Now, the reason all of that is interesting is because this kind of breaking up of time into different time series, overlapping, conflicting on different orders, is just massive important to our lives, not only experientially, but let's say with regard to just how we economically exist, okay? So if you look at capitalism, it's based on the conquering of nature. And then if you look at, on top of that, how it works financially, it's based in many ways on distributing risk. You know, you invest in a company making certain assumptions. You might, as an investor, hedge your bets by investing somewhere else in a way that will make money if your first bet loses money, but you also have insurance of various kinds. Capitalism has to look at the rate of return that it has, and, and, and a rate of return happens at the time. What's going to happen in a year's time? Well, you know, what, what what will dividends be like? What will be return on investment? How will the company expand? What will be happening to GDP and things like that? And one of the problems we have here is that that whole system is based on a kind of shared illusion. You know, we're all going to pretend that we control the future and that our estimates of the probability of X, Y, and Z are, are realistic. Let's all agree that and let's gamble on that basis. Let's invest on that on that basis. And that's great as long as your bets on average are kind of paying off, you know, one way or another. But what happens? If you start thinking about those black swans, the big climate events, the, the earthquakes, the tsunamis, etc., what will they do to the economy and how does capitalism factor that in? And that's a really vexed question. I noticed even just in the last few months, there are certain areas now of America, for example, where you can't get insurance because the insurer knows that they can't cover it. If there's a huge storm, so 
parts of Florida, that it will not be economically viable to rebuild there, okay? To give another example of this, increasingly insurers are thinking not about just taking, you know, the, the current stats on the likelihood of something happening, but trying to factor in the kind of black swan big events that are likely to happen as a result of global warming, even if we can't predict exactly what they are, even if we don't know when they're going to happen. You know, when will the big Atlantic conveyor current that goes up and down the east coast of America, the west coast of Europe, when will that reverse? It could happen in five years, 50 years, 150 years. We don't know, but it probably will happen. It will be have a massive impact on us, right? It will destroy entire ecosystems. But we don't know when it's going to happen. So how do we allow for that? Well, increasingly, you know, insurers are developing things they call catastrophe bonds, cap bonds where huge amounts of money are put up to insure against particular events. And I mean, these, these are events on the scale of Hurricane Katrina and things like that. Yeah? But a lot of places just decide they can't afford that kind of insurance. Yeah, the city cannot afford to be entirely insured like this. I mean, if, if temperatures keep rising, okay, there are going to be parts of America where people are not going to be able to live. They're going to have to move. What happens to the industries in those places? What happens to the investment? And my point is that this question of time and the breaking up of time, and in a sense, are losing control of the narrative of, of capitalism and of other things, is not just an abstract thing about how we perceive the world. It's going to have huge impact on our economy. You know, this kind of temporality. When will a black swan arrive? We now have to factor that in. We don't know who's going to insure against it. Who will insure against a tsunami coming down the River Thames, you know, overpowering the Thames barrier and, and wiping out central London. I don't think anybody is at the moment. I mean, if people have got more information about that than I have, but that's the kind of problem, this question of, you know, different rates of amortisation of global warming. That's where that begins to kick in. And still, just stay with hyperobjects a bit longer because I, I think they're so central to this argument. One more aspect of them that I'd like to hear you talk about is this question of scale. So what hyperobject is, um, is is hyper relative to to something else. And this allows you to say, we may even be hyper objects to ourselves. So I'd like you to unpick that sentence, that intriguing sentence. Well, it may be worth discussing as an example, but it was a bit off the cuff. But what I meant was that, you know, the... Um... It's a paradox, whatever it is, but the ship of the seers, you know, the idea that the ship is replaced plank by plank, sail by sail over the years until eventually none of the original components of the ship remain. But it remains the ship of the seers, yeah? as you know. That's very like our own body. We exist as an identity quite in relation to, but also separately from all of our parts. So our existence as, you know, our identity is a kind of hyper object with relation to the parts. And that's probably something you could dig into. But as I said, it was a bit of an off-the-cuff remark. But the point is that the hyper object thing about the distribution in space and time, it's because our mind, think of it in Kantian terms, right? We're, we are rigged, according to Kant. Uh, we're, we're, we have internal machinery that constructs time and space for us in a manner that makes experience possible. The point is that all of that experience is assumed to be kind of human scale experience about objects that are roughly human sized, where 
roughly human size goes from actually possibly from a tennis ball to the size of a continent. I mean, I can imagine, having been on a few plane rides across Europe, I can kind of imagine, you know, I kind of have some intuition about what it is. But if you talk about objects on a much bigger scale, either, you know, spatially or temporally, or in other senses, actually, but on a much bigger scale than human experience, then your intuition fails you. You begin, things that are objects begin to look like statistical correlations to you, as you said earlier. That's just a statistical, surely that's a statistical correlation. It's not a thing. That's because it's a thing on a scale that uh, you're not used to intuiting. You've been able, you personally, us as a, as a species, have got away for centuries now with imagining that, you know, that kind of thing would be a, a, a huge anomaly. It's the kind of thing that H.P. Lovecraft might write about. It's weird, total otherness of things. You know, the weird. We're talking about the weird again, yeah. It seems weird. It doesn't seem, what's the opposite of weird? You know, normal, natural. It seems unnatural and weird because you just don't have the equipment, the equipment to pass it, you know, phenomenologically, intellectually. Have I answered your question there, Connor? I can't remember where we started. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and... Moving on then towards the towards the question of Titans, I think that if I understand you correctly, they're very closely connected. The reappearance of the Titan is very closely bound up in the end of a certain world, which you mentioned earlier, the world which Morton describes as agri-logistic. It's the world, the post-Neolithic world, so perhaps beginning 7,000 BCE, something like that, and spreading and spreading and becoming this world of human minds thinking that they are getting better and better, dealing with nature, molding nature, pushing um, chaos to the fringe and having law, big, you know, cold law block of human understanding shaping the world around them. That's, you actually go as far as to say that's dead, that's ended. And it means that the what we thought we'd expelled, the chaos, is coming back. And this led you to the idea of dragons and titans. So I'd invite you to explain the connection between chaos and titans and dragons. And then I think it'll be clearer why you think they are back. I think there's a couple of issues there. If you can remind me to come back to the second issue, which is more to do with the onset of the weird. But the titans and dragons themselves are kind of specific example of that. So what, what I was thinking was... In fact, I, I just happen to be, one of the things I'm interested in at the moment is just really old human myths and the way that people like Witzel and others have been able to use computational methods to trace the history of, of various myths. But one of the interesting things about that is that one of the, you know, I was reading that one of the oldest myths is connected with the idea of a kind of snake or dragon, usually a flying dragon, a serpent, something like that, that essentially represents the forces of chaos, which have to be subdued for a world to emerge. And if you think of that world as being, you know, not, you know, when people look at the, the book of Genesis, they see it as describing the way that God created matter out of nothing. It isn't really, it's more about how God created an orderly, livable world by separating various things and you know, turning the lights on or whatever it is. But in that sense, many ancient mythologies, and, and when I say that, I mean, you know, including Chinese mythologies, Aboriginal mythologies with rainbow serpent, Native American mythologies, mythologies around the world share this myth of, let's call it a kind of chaos dragon that must be quelled. So, you know, that in, in, in in Mesopotamia, you know, you have Tiamat, the dragon of the waters of chaos that must be subdued for civilization to exist, for, for example. 
So there you have this idea that the chaos of the world must be conquered and held in place for civilization to happen, for the world to happen. Yeah, And then as a correlative of that, in many of these myths, as you all know, because I know you have a special interest in kind of Viking, Nordic myth, as a correlative of this, there's also the idea that the, the dragons may not have gone away entirely. There may There is the potential for them to reassert themselves and for chaos to reign again. So in Egyptian mythology, that might be someone like Set, but more, more in line with the mythologies I'm talking about, for Norse people, they have the idea of, I can't remember his name, but the, the sort of world dragon who surrounded the world and set the, set the limits of the world by biting his own tail, forming the Uruboros, which circles the world. And the point is that when the serpent, the dragon, lets go of its tail, chaos is unleashed again, Ragnarok unfolds, the, you know, the twilight of the idol. The end of the world is unleashed. Connected to that myth is a is a kind of slight variation on it, where where that the chaos dragon is really the the titans in Greek myth. So in Greek myth, the titans were a kind of second generation layer of gods after Kronos and Gaia. They their children, led by Zeus, eventually overthrew the titans and. Zeus, as the leader of the Olympian gods, conquering the Titans is essentially the, the bit of the original myth in which you know, the gods conquer the Chaos Dragon. And what the Zeus and, uh, and the Greek pantheon did after conquering the Titans was largely lock them up under the earth and the sea. And the reason that was of interest to me is because if you think of the severance that you mentioned earlier, this idea that in an agricultural society is, is where we really begin to separate ourselves off from the world to put a border around us, to have the civilised area versus the uncivilised area, a kind of in-and-out membrane cutting. That kind of thinking is the beginning of the process of banishing chaos to the borders. And an logistic thinking that has driven us right through to the Industrial Revolution and, and down to today with our attempt to conquer the chaos of nature. But what's happening is the titans are being unleashed. Nature is reasserting itself. And of course, that appears to us as complete chaos. And the reason I latched on to the titan version of the myth was simply because I read a report recently saying that a lot of the volcanoes where the titans were supposed to have been banished by Zeus, so he buried them under mountains, and the people of the time would see often see volcanoes as the result of the titans wailing and you know thrashing around underneath the mountains. Um, but I was reading a report that said that as a result of global warming, that there are going to be a lot more volcanic activity because ice uh, that currently caps some of these volcanoes and keeps the uh, magma in place, uh, that a lot of that ice is melting. And to the extent that it melts, it's easier for the volcanoes to erupt. And so, in a sense, the titans will be emerging from their mountains again. And all that is, for me, is a metaphor of the way that the chaos, which in human myth was banished in the form of the chaos, the bear, dragons, Tiamat, and so on, that chaos is, is returning. And it will feel like the awakening of titans. And to put a slight angle on that, titans are old gods who've been banished and buried under mountains. But in other circumstances, the old gods can be seen as quite friendly and they can be seen as old gods who've gone to live under the earth. For example, with the fairies and goblins and all kinds of things like that. And so I suppose what I was trying to say is that the re-emergence of the chaos of nature will take to us will take the form of weird things happening, which will feel very much like actors beginning to emerge that within nature, you know, nature behaving as a object 
subjectively attacking us, becoming foreign to us, no longer controllable by us. So the Titan thing was just a particularly vivid example because of the volcano business of a more general process in which the world becomes, I don't want to say enchanted again, because there's a whole history of people, for example, arguing that it was never that enchanted to start with. But within the limited terms of this discussion, I want to say that we will go back to a more enchanted world in which things seem weird because we no longer control them or we no longer even can control them, even in principle. So that, that would be the, the aspect of it, of the new weirdness, which I, I talk about, but maybe we'll talk a bit more about that. Good. Yeah, well, I think it's a very powerful idea. I think the world already does feel like that. And describing what's happening like that is not only poetic, it's, it helps explore one's feelings in, the fa- in living in this age, in that, the yes, a titan is a terrifying being. But not necessarily malevolent. I mean, they're just—they're just so beyond control that mass destruction is nothing to them. But but neither is unleashing new forms of new, just new ways of looking at the world. I, I hesitated there because I was going to say magical, but that's going to sound a bit sort of hippie. And you know, that's not what you're saying. I think there's quite a difference between what you're saying and the sort of animism of the '60s, say of of seeing a tree as as embodying you know something spiritually beyond humans i mean that trees might but you're talking about something much much more frightening but but it is i think a zeitgeist of our times a zeitgeist of the uncanny and it's interesting you know so anyone listening to this who's kind of really committed to uh, scientific method and the the, the enlightenment the gender and rationalism they're not going to like this kind of angle on it But I would say even in those areas that are the most hard science, it's interesting how things are starting to open up. It is like people are being impacted by something very strange, very weird, very outside of control. So I'm thinking of Hertog's book, for example, about the the origins of the universe and how it could all be a hologram on a a surface of a, in its equivalent to such a black hole, but it's the boundary of the universe. I'm thinking of Sheldrake's book about the astonishing forms of life and mitochondria, the mushrooms, and just, you know, this round the boundaries of where thought had previously brought us with, with the kind of enlightenment project. We are now getting very interesting, uncanny, magical sorts of experiences. And I think that's what you're writing about. That's what you're referring to. Yeah, I mean, regarding these people who are deeply committed to, you know, the enlightenment, rationalistic, scientific way of seeing the world, you know, I'll happily, I'd like to reassure them that I am talking about magic. And what I mean by that is that, you know, what we, for example, what, you know, I, I then emphasize the Titans because, because exploding volcanoes are pretty big and fierce and catastrophic things. But I suppose from a certain point of view, I should be downplaying that because I don't scare people with this because I think that what we have to do is enter this world of the weird. Okay. I don't think ultimately it's, there's a transitional elements to it, i.e. of transitioning from an old way of seeing the world to a new way of seeing the world. And I don't know what that new way of seeing the world is, but I'm convinced weirdness and things related to that are absolutely part of it as, you know, the, in a sense, the correct way to acclimatise yourself in the world, to, be, to stop seeing it all as manipulable and to start seeing it as animated in the full sense of 
full of anima. Whether that means animism, you know, can be debated, but it means something like that. Why that's important, I think, is that, you know, I can imagine some people listening to this and thinking, well, you know, we've heard this before. You know, the breakup of agrologistical thought, once it's described, you know, the breakup of that sounds awfully like, you know, for example, the death of meta-narrative and post-modern. And so I think what Walton is doing is giving a modern gloss and explanation of this long-term process in terms of hyper-objects. But the process was going on, has been going on for a long time before, you know, Timothy Morton picked up a pen. And in a sense, I think you can see certainly the time since the Second World War, so a little bit arbitrarily, but let's say since the explosion of the first atomic bomb, you can see an acceleration in culture of an awareness of the weird. And I kind of, I gave a list of examples in my article and I was talking about, you know, a hauntology, which people talk about, weird with a W-Y-R-D, the old weird America, which is a thing in folk music and many other examples. I listed quite a few, but then I realized all I just listed were the sort of hobbies of my friends on Facebook who are into these things, you know, the new paganism, you know, various kinds of religious, this, other. But the point is that lots of people for quite a while now have been interested in this world that is outside the purview of the Enlightenment theory. I think one aspect of that is that if we look to the point at which the Enlightenment, or however you want to characterize these things, but to when it takes off, okay, it takes off in a process, a direction from magic. You know, the old and old disciplines and ways of seeing the world are catapulted. And at that point, when science arises, so we can see that in the English Civil War, you have a, a huge flourishing of radical religious sects, but with strange cosmologies. You know, if you look at mine and many other people's favourite group, the Panthers, they're basically pantheists. You know, they had a very radical communist, I think actually beyond communist agenda, that involved a kind of animism, a pantheism, an absolute, a sort of, libertarian has all the wrong connotations these days, but a radical democracy and so on and so forth. They had all these these strange ideas, but they're all rejected as science of the Enlightenment takes off. And I think what we have to do is see the need to heal that direction and to bring magic and the affective back into things. And, and, and that's magic is our weirdness, but the other weirdness we need to bring in is the weirdness of all life. Knowing that, for example, the way I talked about the Kantian aspect of the way we perceive the world, what about the way other animals perceive the world? You know, when we think of how we develop our science, we see it as a kind of affecting of the human perspective, its intensification, using experiment, reason, and so on, to bring that consciousness into a state of seeing how the world really is. But that's absurd because we are only one observer. You know, there are all these other observers. There are all these other participants in existence, other lives, other animals, other species, etc. And I think the weird means getting used to that, that the, the, the because one thing about objects in Morton's sense is he says uh, there, there's always something about every object that is withdrawn, which sounds a bit canty, you know, the noumena that you could never know in itself. But, you know, w w whatever. His point is that that always exists. It exists within ourselves. It's the sense we have within ourselves of being withdrawn even from ourselves. Maybe that's connected with the ship of Theseus thing I mentioned earlier. But in any case, there is a deep sense of mystery and limitation. And living in a world that is weird involves a different way of living in the world. So all of these hobbies my friends have on, my friends on Facebook have, all of these thoughts that have begun to arise over the last few decades concerning the breakdown of the Enlightenment, postmodernism, whatever, you know, all of these things. 
they're all straws in the wind, in a sense, of an emerging different consciousness of reality, which, when I say emerging, I don't want to sound like a Marxist saying that this view will inevitably emerge. You know, it represents the new equivalent of class consciousness or imputed class consciousness or something like that. It does nothing like that. I don't know what it what will come of all this at all. But I am confident that things are moving in that direction and that the different kinds of weird that people perceive are a serious phenomenon. It's not, you know, I have to mention, it's not a coincidence that quite a few, you know, certainly Graham Harm, who's one of the uh, people connected with speculative realism, has written at length about weirdness in Lovecraft. Mark Fisher wrote a book about the weird and the eerie and what these things are. And the weird and the eerie, when you recognise, in a sense, I think, I think Fisher says something like, it's when you recognise, when you see the inside from the point of view of the outside. Okay, so you realise there's something radically amiss with the way you understand the world. You know, it's like you're, you're one of those... New Haven guys, you know, hanging out in a fishing village in a dark port and you suddenly get the sense of the complete other breaking into your world. I think that kind of thing, which you do find in in, in weird tales, is indicative of the kind of experiences we're increasingly going to have. And then I would add to that, that the point is that we are going to have to get used to it and you know, to live in that world because we're, what we are not going to be able to do is rescue agrologistic mindset, the enlightenment mindset of humans exercising increasing control over reality. For example, in order to prevent climbing, climate warming, let's control more. Let's do it. That's the kind of thing that's been put under the question mark. Terrific. Well, I found that very interesting and very helpful in, in clarifying some of the ideas in your article. So if people haven't already read it, I think they should follow up the podcast by reading it. And I'm sure you'll put the link in. Yeah, I don't know how Substack works, but this is our first podcast. I don't know what it looks like. Time something. But I shall certainly link back to the article and say that, you know, I apologize in advance that I think the article, I tried to take Timothy Morton's work around hyper objects and focus it through this idea of titans because I thought, that would be memorable and impactful, if you know what I mean. But having done it, I'm extremely aware of just how much territory there is still to be covered in extending this idea of the weird and the eerie and what is the subject and what isn't. And in some sense, try to pull together the last you know, half a century or more of weird studies and pull them, pull them together into some kind of useful meditation on the problems that we face with, with global warming. Well, with that said, thank you very, very much for being here today. Conan for asking those questions. I hope we can have more of these discussions in future. But for now, thank you very much and thank you to everyone who managed to listen in. If you have any questions, I'm not sure again how these podcasts work, but if you have any questions, just do them as comments somewhere in the Traveller in the Evening Substack blog. Or I think there's probably a contact email somewhere where, where, where you send a mail to us to ask any questions or, or, or make your own points. That having been said, thank you very much, Connor. Thank you very much to everyone for listening in. Mm-hmm.